Well, good morning. Good morning. Those of you at home, I hope that at home you're able to uh, hear uh, the music and the vocals as well as we can here in-house. It just sounds so nice. Everyone here singing, it just sounds wonderful. So I hope that you're able to experience that at home. We've got our our new mics hidden back here so uh, we can pick up the the crowd, if you will, singing and and participating, and it's just a, a phenomenal thing. So I hope that you're able to to join us in that. I hope you enjoyed the snow this week. None of us can remember the last time that happened. Uh, it, it, we looked at the calendar, but even then, that's vague. Like, I don't remember that snow at all. So hopefully you enjoyed that. I know our week was fun. We had a uh, day off Monday because it was a holiday, and then Tuesday, snow day. Wednesday, my kids actually had to go to school along with their mother who teaches at the school. And then the Thursday, snow actually kept them home again because the roads were terrible between there and school. So they went to school twice this week. Um, yeah, that, they enjoyed that. Did, did Clay County ever go back to school this week? No, they never even bothered. All right, good, good. That's why bother. You know, who cares? Uh, 42 today, 48 on Wednesday this week. Let's just go straight to spring. Kristen said, I want one good snow, one good snow, and then let's just move to spring. So there we go. Now you have it. Spring is upon us. Um, we'll see. Maybe she'll get her wish. I don't know. Will she? I don't know. Maybe. Whatever. Um, Excited, excited for so many things. I know McKenna was up here earlier sharing with you some announcements and, and stuff, and her and I are going to be working on a project here real soon together that we'll have more information for you very, very soon about that, uh, linking a little bit of what we're doing up here with what we're doing downstairs, and so we're excited about that coming up. Youth group starting back up tonight. If, if you don't know my history, that's my history. So 23 years I spent doing youth ministry with students, and so, so excited that that is going to get up and running once again here, and I've got two kids that are a part of it, so even, even better, right? It's a wonderful thing. Let's, let's go, Lord, in prayer, and we'll dive into his word. Father God, uh, again, just a beautiful morning, but we are thankful for the reprieve from the cold and the snow, and we are looking forward to these warmer temperatures. I know it's about this time of year every year that I'll say something like this, but, but Father, the way this earth works and the way our seasons work this time of year sets us up to see you create things new once again. Let that always be our reminder as to what you do in our lives. And Father, if we're searching today, the Father, you want to come in and you want to renew our lives. You want to make us into a new creation. Father, we want to allow you to do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to do is take just a couple of moments here and kind of recap the last two weeks because they absolutely put together the pieces of the puzzle perfectly for the message beginning today, all right? So our series began with a very, very, very short history a couple weeks ago of the Babylonian Empire, their capture of Judah and of Jerusalem. Now, this capture is absolutely what led to Daniel being taken into captivity, all right, with thousands of other Israelites. And so understand that was the place. The, the Babylonians had put this, this new idea in place where they brought in these recruits, these captors, and they would train them, the best and the brightest from the nations they would capture, they would train them in the ways of Babylon. They re-educated them in such a way that they would teach them their language, their culture, their law, and their religion. And then when they graduated from this three-year program, then they would install these people, if they proved worthy, into positions of authority to do some governing. And typically, they were governing their own people. It was an ingenious way to try to work these captives in to use them to help control their very own people. It was a brilliant, brilliant idea. Daniel wrote this book later on in life. He was older. This wasn't a biography that he wrote along the way. It wasn't a diary that he kept. He was looking back and reflecting on God's hand throughout his life. And so from the opening of this letter, he reveals what he realized, that God was in control 
of those who are in control. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 tell us that God delivered King Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He delivered the articles of the temple into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. It was God that allowed these, permitted these things to happen. Now, likely, all of us have asked this question before. Why do bad things happen to good people. Now, we could discuss the theology of that question and to whether or not that actually is even a legitimate question. We can do that at a later time, if you wish. But we've probably all asked that. We've probably went on to ask another question then beyond that. Why on earth, this probably would have been Daniel's biggest question, why do the good things keep happening to the bad people? Aren't I doing better than they are? God, why do you keep rewarding those others? But from Daniel's perspective, in the end, he always believed that God was in control of those who were in control. In today's culture, unless you're just really unique and have a really unique relationship with God, it is very difficult to understand that now. It's hard to see God's hand at work sometimes in modern-day Babylon, isn't it? We see the decisions being made, we see the agendas being promoted, we see the laws being passed, and we are trying to figure out, God, okay, you say you're in control, I believe you're in control, but man, I am having a hard time witnessing this firsthand. What we have to remember is that his ways, thankfully, are not our ways. Our thoughts, not the same as his. We have to trust. Our faith has to be genuine. Every one of us have gone through hardships in life, trials, and will likely, probably, unfortunately, experience a few more in our lives to come. Jesus promised us that we would, but he also promised us that he will be here with us always and through anything that comes our way. So then our role becomes to be obedient. When we don't understand or agree with what God seems he's doing, we have to strive to see life from his perspective, the right perspective. And the more time that we spend with him in prayer and the more time we spend with him in his people and we spend time worshiping him and getting to understand him, then he will begin to reveal to us this world from his perspective. And then finally, to review, we've got to develop endurance. Just like in real life, our spiritual life, endurance is not an easy task. It's not a lot of fun. But both James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Paul encourage us to develop this endurance in our lives. Romans 5, 3 through 5 say this, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Remember, Paul has suffered a lot. And so we might dismiss, how could I glory in my sufferings? Well, Paul's saying, hey, I've been there, I've done that, I understand. Because he knows that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and then character produces the hope that we're talking about today. And hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, you must always remember that he was not a follower of Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus. He thought his brother was a crazy man until after the resurrection. When I still believe that Jesus went to James and his brothers and met with them and said, Hey guys, no hard feelings. Let me tell you who I really am. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let that perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Lastly, courage and hope, confidence and courage, courage that God will come through, confidence that God will come through, 
and courage to know that God is with us, confidence to know that God is absolutely with you through all times and in all things. Those reminders set up today's message perfectly. Daniel's hope in Jesus is the absolute source of his courage to fight. Your hope, my hope in Jesus Christ gives us the courage to keep up the good fight in modern day Babylon. And think about how much more we know about our faith than what Daniel did. Daniel didn't know Jesus per se. He knew of his God. He knew of what the prophets had spoke But he had never had that encounter, face-to-face encounter with Jesus. Jesus had not died, had not resurrected yet. He had not come to this earth in human form yet, yet Daniel's hope was incredible. It was the source of his courage. But in this world we live in, how can we even talk about hope? Because that word has been so diluted, it's so misunderstood in the world today. In our culture, hope is usually seen as just a form of wishful thinking, something like this. Hey, I, I hope you have a great trip. I hope everything turns out okay. Hopes also come to relate to something like a a positive thinking or a visualization. You might have said something like this. Hey, don't give up hope or don't lose hope. It's not bad advice. There's nothing wrong with that advice. But it is definitely not the biblical hope of a man like Daniel. Daniel did not sit around and wish or hope that everything turned out okay. He didn't visualize. I just want everything to work out perfectly. No, Daniel knew He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything would be okay. Further, he knew that God was in control and that even if things didn't turn out the way he, Daniel, wanted them to, he knew that wasn't just okay, that that was even better than what he had hoped for. You see, Daniel had hope, a deep-rooted, ingrained, entrenched confidence in God's character, God is who he says he is, and God's his sovereignty Daniel's hope was not just in words either. He literally staked his life on the hope that he had in his God multiple times. And this is the same hope that Paul writes of to Titus in chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Does that not perfectly describe Daniel's life? While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. Paul is saying that we are so certain of Jesus' return that it has become the forming, shaping, unifying principle of our lives. It influences our priorities. It determines our moral standards. It even allows us to be willing to be persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our blessed hope. And it's not that we wish he would come right in this moment, but we are so certain that he will come that we will live our lives differently. And this type of biblical hope will change the way, hopefully, you hear one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, 1 Peter 3.15, but in your heart set apart or revere Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an account for, to anyone who asks for the hope that you have. The challenge to us is not to make a list of reasons why we think that maybe Jesus just might be the Messiah. No, that's not it at all. We are to share with people how we are absolutely certain that we know he is. That is the source of our hope. 
This process probably doesn't happen overnight. You probably don't just instantaneously have that kind of hope in our life, but it absolutely should be happening over time if you're a follower of Jesus. The thing is, many of us have been in church a very long time, some of us our whole lives, and have we ever intentionally developed or intentionally prayed for that kind of hope in our Lord? Because if you haven't, now's the time and today is the day to be challenged. Why? Because there are so many hope killers in this world that exist all around us. And when our hope is gone, we find ourselves in despair. A Christian should never be in despair. As a matter of fact, a a despairing Christian is an oxymoron. It's really not possible because the word despair literally means without hope. All hope is gone. Despair is never from God. We might worry. We might be sad. We absolutely could get depressed. Those things do happen. But when we have an understanding of who our God is, then we will never be people of despair, people that are hopeless. Now, a lot of us have been through hard times. I won't ask for a show of hands because probably everyone's would, would, would gone up at some point. And depending on where you're at in life, you might, and I say that word strongly, you might be able to look back and see God's hand at work. But it is also possible that God has not revealed that to you yet. And I don't care if you're the youngest or the oldest person listening this morning. Do not feel bad about that. Do not feel like you have missed it, as if God has revealed it to you somehow and you just haven't caught on just yet. Do not think that. It is possible God has not, might not ever fully reveal that to you. What he asks is for you to keep searching. Keep searching for him, keep seeking him, and in his time, he will allow you to see his hand at work. Because in this world, there are so many tragic things that can happen, isn't there? Events that we have absolutely no control over in our lives. But there's also a whole lot of ways that we humans have figured out to mess up our own lives, and we're pretty good at it. Let's just be really honest. And even those ways can kill the hope, (laughs) that can reside within us. One of the greatest ways that we daily lose our hope is we, we fill our lives with garbage. We do it intentionally sometimes, sometimes it's completely unintentional. The old expression, garbage in, garbage out, is absolutely true. So when we fill our lives with misinformation, with lies, and quite honestly, the evil that is all around us in this world, when we see that, the more we take in, the more despair we find ourselves in. The more we look at this world and we are worried and we are depressed and we don't know where to turn. As a believer, we've got to balance those things out. You can't ignore them completely. It would be wonderful maybe to live in a bubble and pretend those things didn't exist, but they do. And so we've got to find a way to balance out all of that negativity that hope-killing stuff with the truth of God's word and the hope in Christ. So if you do not yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, then here's what you got to know, that there is good news out there. As a matter of fact, I'll take it a step further. There is great news to be had out there. And a lot of people would say it simply this way, well, Jesus loves you, but you know what? Even the word love has been so dumbed down in our culture, it means nothing to so many people. Like, who's Jesus? How could he possibly love me? So we have to go a step further. We've got to let people know that this Jesus who loves them created them because they don't believe that. They've been taught all kinds of other things. And he created them on purpose. They aren't an accident. Their life is not a mistake. It was absolutely intentional. And his love goes far beyond just 
words. As a matter of fact, he gave his life for you. And he loves you even if you don't believe in him. He loves you just as you are right in this moment. Whatever you're doing, whatever you've done, it doesn't matter. He loves you so much he gave his very own life so that all of those mistakes that you have made, that I have made, can be forgiven so that we can have hope in this world that cannot be taken from us. Now, in the first message of this series, I shared with you, Daniel is my second favorite character in all of God's word, and there's a lot of reasons why. So let's start looking at a few of those. At the very beginning of the book of Daniel, we read about Daniel and his friends being taken captive, taken away. Listen to this description, Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing an aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. So the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Now, if you happen to be captive, taken captive when a new kingdom comes in and overruns your city and kills lots of your friends and family members and destroys the town you grew up in, if you're captured and you're led away to the enemy's land, this description of where they take you doesn't sound all that bad. There's definitely worse things that could happen, right? If you're taken in under the king himself, you're trained in the ways of the land that you are being taken to, you're fed from the king's table, that's a much better than most prisoners of war, of course, would ever be treated. Daniel was selected to be a part of this re-education and training program I described earlier. It seems okay, at least, on the surface, but there were probably a few drawbacks along the way. Obviously, first of all, you were removed. You were separated from your own people, and you were left to hang out with just the king's officials and then the other trainees. This part is speculation from my perspective. If you got into this training program and you just couldn't cut it, what do you suppose they did with you? Is there any use at all in keeping you around? Probably not, right? There's other reasons why it might not have been so good. Even when you did complete the training program and went into service of the king, it's probably likely that people from your own family, if you will, your own people would view you as a traitor. And so you'd have that strike against you. Plus, as we know from the life of Daniel, as we'll study a little bit further, Daniel, even when great things happen, even when he achieves these great things, he proves himself worthy time and time and time. Again, there are still people who want you dead. Why? Well, because you're not like them. And so he could have been eliminated simply because he wasn't one of the Babylonians in the ruling court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And there was one other thing that a lot of biblical scholars speculate about, and it is just speculation, but it is probable. It's probably true that Daniel was made to be a eunuch in, in forced service of his king. He was probably forcibly sterilized as a part of his service. And if you've read about Daniel, there is no family tree. There is no wife. There are no kids at all in his life. And obviously, that was a big source of Jewish faith, Jewish religion, having the family, having the kids to pass things down on. So maybe being in service of the king wasn't such a good thing. It would appear that in this very first scene, this opening scene of the book of Daniel, it must have happened right at the very beginning because it involves food. 
And since his arrival, God has already begun to show favor to Daniel and his buddies. In chapter 1, verse 9, it says that the royal official, the one in charge of this training program, had shown them some favor already. Daniel stood up, and he immediately asked to be excluded from the royal diet. He was resolved. He was determined. It was an absolute that he was not going to defile himself by eating this food that goes against his Jewish faith. That was bold. That was bold in a lot of ways. If you've ever been taught well, then you know that if you're invited to a guest's house, what do you eat for dinner? Whatever they serve. Yeah, it's just what you're supposed to do. It's difficult at times. Trust me, I know. I don't love every kind of food. I'm a really simple meat and potatoes person. But anyway, that's another story. Um, if you get that food place before you, you should probably eat it. Well, if the king, who has killed thousands of people that you knew, destroyed your city, invites you to dinner after having taken you captive, and you turn away his food, you aren't just risking being rude. Yeah, absolutely. He could certainly be a deadly decision for you. But Daniel had hope. Now, was his hope just wishful thinking? Did he do something like this? Hey, guys, man, I really hope they don't make us eat this food and hope then we're going to sin. That would just be terrible. I just hope that that's not how it goes. Man, it sure would be neat if the diet that God gave us made us look a little bit better than everybody else. That would be great because then we wouldn't get in trouble for not eating the king's food, right? Do you think that's really what was going through Daniel's mind? Or was his hope maybe just a little bit more certain than that. Genuine biblical hope. He believed that God was in control of the people that were in control of him. And he believed that if he followed the ways of God and he refused to sin, that he absolutely knew there would be something good at the other end. He would be protected one way or another. And he was, because if you've read, you know that at the end of those 10 days, they look better than everybody else in that training program. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and they were given vegetables instead. Daniel's hope was in what he knew God had already given him. His faith was in the reality that God would be true to his word. God keeps his promises. But Daniel's hope was only beginning to be on display. The second trial that Daniel records in his life is literally an impossible thing. You do need to know in Daniel 1.17 that God has given Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and understand visions. That's slipped in there. Daniel lets everyone know that so you can understand how these other events in his life unfold. Daniel's hope in God gives him the courage to accomplish the impossible. Now, the story is much like the ancient story of Joseph in Egypt when Pharaoh had that troubling dream and he tells his, his sorcerers and magicians and everybody and nobody can interpret and they're all sitting around wondering what to do. And then all of a sudden, one of the king's servants goes, hey, wait a minute. I remember this guy. I met him in prison and he told me my dream. Maybe we should bring Joseph out. Well, Joseph goes on to interpret the dream and also propel himself to the second position in all of Egypt. But Daniel's story has a little bit of a twist. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, and you can actually do some secular research about Nebuchadnezzar and find out that he probably suffered from a mental disorder of some kind for sure. And he was a paranoid king, which probably most kings and leaders in that time were for lots of good reason. But Daniel's story's twist was that Nebuchadnezzar's dream was so troubling, not only did he need it interpreted, but he refused to tell anyone what it was. Daniel, too, records that he sent for all of his magicians and chanters, sorcerers and astrologers to interpret this dream, but he wasn't going to tell them what it was. They had to guess what it was that he dreamed and then interpret it. Now, I don't know about you, but you've heard some people's dreams, right? Maybe even some of your own. They are crazy. 
Imagine someone being able to figure out, A, what was happening inside your head, and B, what it actually meant. It's impossible to imagine. And I know some of you dream some weird things for sure. But here's the thing. Uh, This was an impossibility. Absolutely. No one could possibly do this. But I can imagine why maybe the king's men, if you will, were a little bit on edge because there was a little incentive that Nebuchadnezzar threw in for them. It was something to the effect of this. Um, Get this right, or I'm going to cut you into pieces and turn all your houses into rubble. Has anybody's boss ever given you that kind of challenge? Complete this task, and if you don't, well, I'm just going to cut you into pieces and turn your house into rubble. That's all. That's all the pressure that they had on them at the time. Of course, the magicians and their friends were afraid at that point. They knew that such a request was impossible. Here's their exact quote, Daniel 2, 10. There is no one on earth that can do what the kings ask. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Well... Not until John 1, 1, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Too difficult, absolutely. So, so Nebuchadnezzar, being the kind soul that he was, he relented and said, okay, you're right. Let me tell you my dream. No, actually, he did the exact opposite. It made him mad. And so he's like, you know what? I'm just going to kill all of you. Don't worry about the dream. I'm just going to kill you. Anyway, he was actually angry at this point. He was just going to cut him to pieces before. Now he's really mad, right? I don't know. Poor guy. So The problem with this issue was now he included all of the wise men. Well, that included Daniel and his friends. So Daniel met with the king's commander because, remember, he had a good relationship with these folks. And then he met with his friends. Some of you might know their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they prayed. They prayed that God would reveal this dream to Daniel, that Daniel had hope that God could and would do the impossible Not just wishful thinking, boy, wouldn't it be neat, guys, if God would show me this and I could pull off this neat little party trick to tell the king what his dream was and what it meant. See, the stakes were pretty high. These are Daniel's options, right? If you don't interpret the dream, you're dead. If you do interpret the dream and the king, uh, and if you do interpret the dream and you're wrong, well, you're dead. And if you do interpret the dream and the king doesn't like your interpretation, guess what? You're probably dead. So those are his options that are on the plate before him. Where is the hope in that? Where's the win for Daniel in being able to interpret this dream? Well, the rest of Daniel 2 reveals the actual dream, the interpretation. Daniel immediately praises God for having revealed this to him. And then he goes to the king. And he tells the king, first and foremost, king, I did not interpret this dream. My God did. My God alone is the one able to reveal these mysteries Remember that Daniel's hope is in God. Not only let God reveal the dream to him and its meaning, but it now gave him the courage to go stand before the king and share with him this dream and this interpretation because the dream was not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. Given this king, this kind of news could absolutely result in immediate execution. I mean, could you imagine telling the king, hey, by the way, king, you got nothing to do with the fact you're in charge. Did you know that? Your power isn't from you. As a matter of fact, your power is from God alone. You see, kings have pretty big egos most of the time, and Nebuchadnezzar was no exception. And oh, by the way, this king just conquered Daniel's people and overthrew Daniel's God, at least so he thought. But then he went on to share him that the kingdom would ultimately be taken over soon. And then another kingdom would set in, and then another kingdom would set in until a fourth finally comes and takes control and rules for a period. Daniel's description goes into great detail of everything 
that King Nebuchadnezzar had experienced, the exact details of what was in the dream. Now be King Nebuchadnezzar. You threw this challenge out there. You knew it was impossible, and someone just beat you. (laughs) Someone just told you everything that you ever thought. Wouldn't that freak you out just a little if you're king? If you were paranoid before, now there's one guy that knows everything you're thinking before you even think it. Uh Uh-oh. That's kind of scary. And it did freak him out, at least for a while, a few years. And then a couple years later, a few of his his really great trusted advisors, and he came up with this great idea of building this giant golden statue and forcing everyone to come down and bow down to worship it. And if you didn't, of course, the punishment is death, because that's just what they did back then. But this time it was by fiery furnace. Does anyone remember that story? Same king forgot about God. Let's finish. Let's finish by focusing in on Daniel's hope. That's the topic of today. Daniel's hope, his confidence that God's ways, specifically to begin with, God's dietary rules, were superior to those of the pagan culture he was taken into. This hope gave him the courage to ask for a menu change, and that changed the career course for Daniel and his buddies. It placed all of them ahead of all the others in that training program in Babylon. And Daniel's hope that God would provide the dream as well as the meaning allowed him to do the impossible and save the lives of himself and his friends. But beyond that, think of this, it saved the lives of the other kings, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. It might be worth noting that those men were not godly men. They were actually Satan worshipers, truth be known. They were worshiping the occults and God chose to save their lives, that's interesting. If you think about who our God is, it's incredible. His mercy, his grace never ends. A couple of other famous stories from Daniel, there's these other characters, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, more famously known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their their hope in God is the one that allowed them to defy the king's orders to his face. They refused to bow down, and and they even willingly walked into that fiery furnace, the very furnace that killed the men who put them in there. Now, was there hope and wishful thinking? Is that all it was? Were they just able to use the power of positive thinking and visualize not getting vaporized in the furnace that had been heated seven times hotter than normal? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think their hope was in the power of the Lord, their God. They knew what they were doing was right in his eyes. They were striving to please him and to obey his commands. Here's the best part. Their hope was so rock solid, regardless of the outcome. Last week, we talked about how it's easy to obey God when we're agreeing with him, when we understand where he's going, when things make sense. But when his way doesn't make sense or things seem to be going in the wrong direction, For the record, I would contend that walking directly into a fiery furnace is the wrong direction. Just throwing it out there. Real faith, true hope allows you to walk right in. And their hope allowed them to say in Daniel 3.16, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand, or your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Will we be that bold today? 
Will we stand up to the culture? Will we stand up to whatever is out there and say, hey, no, we're not going to do that. Our hope is in our God. Our hope is not in the outcome of this moment. In this case, as well as the other miraculous events, and we'll talk about a couple of them in the two weeks to come that unfold, Daniel and his friends have a desired outcome. I mean, I don't think they desired to go into the fiery furnace, and they would love it if God would save them. They had a desired outcome, but they submitted themselves to God's will, to God's plan, knowing that he was in control and that he alone knows the best path forward. As a believer, we claim that we know how this story ends, right? God wins. We win if we're his followers. We know the final score. When you know how the story ends, then you should live differently. There should be no fear because his perfect love casts out our fear. No despair for this world because he has overcome the world and all the evil that resides within it. And so church will end with this question, do we truly believe what Romans 8.28 says? Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, then you're like, what's Romans 8.28? We'll get there. But this should be something that we as followers of Jesus hang our hat on, that we truly do believe this. Let's read it in context and ask yourself the question, is this your hope? Do you believe this? I, Paul, consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, full adoption into sonship, the redemption of our bodies when we're joined with Christ. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. As you look around today, there's going to be times where you don't know what to say. You just lift it up to God. He knows. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And here's the money verse. And we know, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. Now, this is another one of those passages, just like last week, that we believers love to take out of context. And we'll say, we know that God works in all things for good. No, no, he doesn't. <laughs> There's a big stipulation here. He works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. We know, not we think, not we might, not maybe. Our hope is absolute. The hope that allowed Daniel to thrive in Babylon, the hope that allowed each and every miracle to happen in his life. Do we share that hope? You see, you can't enter into the situations that Daniel was in, which is wishful or positive thinking. You can only survive them with the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus 
Christ. And so the question today is simply this. Do you have that hope? Father God, if there's anyone listening today, believer, long time, just learning about Jesus today, do they have that hope? Do they have that hope? We're going to need that hope. As we face this world around us, we need this hope. This is our rock, our hope in you. Father, it's unshakable. And yet here we are at the end of a pandemic. A lot of believers have had their hope shaken in this last year because our hope was in this world, in the economy, in medicine, and you name it. Our hope was not in you. And our hope has been crushed. Father, it's time. It's time to pray that the Spirit will come into our lives and will rebuild that hope so that hope becomes something that the world will never, ever, ever have the chance to destroy again. Father, do not allow us to place our hope in anything but you. Father, build that hope. Strengthen that hope. And if there's anyone listening today that has never claimed that hope for themselves, they're wandering through this world. They may feel like everything's just fine right now. But Father, after this last year, there's not too many people living that sort of life. I pray that your hope is revealed to them today and they can come to know you as their only saving grace, as their only hope that will be with them for all eternity. Father, we love you. We thank you for being here with us this morning.